0: This episode is brought to you by Butters and Bars, a Black woman owned and operated skincare company. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Read More podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm your host, Marva Hinton. Today I'm talking with Rashid Newsom about his critically acclaimed debut novel, My Government Means to Kill Me, which was published this past summer. Rashid also works in the world of TV. He's a writer and producer for shows such as Bel Air, The Shy, and Narcos. We spoke in November ahead of his appearance on a panel at the Miami Book Fair. Rashid, thank you so much for coming on Read More to talk about your work.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
0: My Government Means to Kill Me is a coming-of-age story about Trey a young gay Black man who leaves his wealthy, influential family in Indiana to strike out on his own in New York City in the 1980s. During this time, he becomes an activist for gay rights. Rashid, you tell Trey's story in such a unique way that I picked up the book, just started reading, and I had to stop myself after the first chapter, go back and look at the front cover to make sure that I wasn't back reading a novel, uh, because it feels like a memoir, why did you decide to write it in this style?
1: Well, I wanted Trey to be someone that sort of connected with the audience. And so giving it sort of that memoir tone, that idea that someone is being absolutely frank with you, that someone is giving you the real story unvarnished, sort of puts you in his skin, as opposed to putting it, I guess, in the third person where you felt like you were sort of a little distant observing him, I wanted you to be with him. It's also just a fun voice to write in. Um, I, you know, if I were in third person, I'd have to sort of explain all his mistakes or note his mistakes. When you're in first person, you just get to make the mistakes and let the audience worry. Let the audience go, oh no, baby, don't do that.
0: Anytime a writer uses the first person though, and the protagonist has anything in common with themselves, readers often make the leap that Trey is really rashid. Um, you're both from Indiana. You're both black. You're both gay. I mean, is that type of thing super annoying for you? Uh, did you have to
1: deal with it while you were writing or while you were promoting the book? It's not annoying to me. I think it's it's a fair question. I I get. I mean, I get it. Um, and I I have to acknowledge the, the bit of truth in it. I mean, one reason I was able to write it and it I probably feels authentic is it's not that far from maybe how I would have thought at nineteen. Um. Trey is older than me. To make the book interesting, Trey by necessity is also braver than me and more reckless than me. So I don't see myself in his actions. I wouldn't have done half the things he's done. But his orientation being Black and gay and how he observes the world and how he sort of stumbles in from one thing to the next, uh, that I can relate to. (laughs) The title of this book, My Government Means to Kill Me,
0: is so in your face. It stands out so much. When did that come to you in the writing
1: process? I didn't have a title for this. In fact, uh, while I was writing it most of the time, I called it uh, an aggressive act of homosexuality. I just would, I just decided I was going to write the gayest book of the year, and I wasn't going to pull any punches. So that was sort of my mission. Um, the title came as I was writing it, and it, it comes from uh, a speech given by Dorothy Cotton that I, that I was writing. And the moment I felt it, it, ex- it went to the worldview of my character. It explained w- how he felt as a gay Black man in America during that decade. And it was one of those great sort of aha moments. Like you write it, you stop, you look up and you go, oh, there it is, there's my title.
0: Let's talk about your protagonist now. Uh, From the moment I started reading this, I felt like I was just riding with Trey. You know, I was so into him as a character, and going into his world was a lot of fun. How is it that he first started speaking to you as a writer?
1: Well, oddly enough, he came to me in another book, I wrote a novel about a multi-generational family in Indianapolis, and he was in the third generation. And so I knew his family history and his backstory. That book did not sell. I had a, a lit agent at the time who took it out rejections, rejections from all the editors, and that was a bit crushing, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to write next, and I loved Trey as a character, and in that book, I had sent him off to New York when he was 17 and, and didn't follow him, because that book took place in Indianapolis, and so I just decided, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna follow Trey. I know this character. I'd been writing him in part for two years before I started this book, so he was easy to tap into, and by the way, I, I suggest that as a writer, that if you've got something, you go, boy, I know I can knock this out of the park, or I'm really tuned into this. Go for it. No one said this had to be hard.
0: Your chapters in the book are listed as numbered lessons. And as I was reading, I found myself sharing some of Trey's advice to people in my life, such as you can't protect your interest if you don't have an accurate understanding of everyone else's. And Probably my favorite was the vast majority of us are merely pawns in someone else's game. Don't get defensive over this point, embrace it. Once you do, you can begin to manipulate the board. Position correctly, pawns can checkmate kings. How did you get this idea to have Trey share these words of
1: wisdom and where did they come from? Well, for first it's it's sort of it's a writer's trick to sort of get myself out of a jam, which is Trey, when you meet him is 17, by the end of the book, he's 19. Um, with all due respect to people that age, um, they can be very insightful. They can be very intelligent, but there there isn't yet an ability to be terribly reflective about it because you're doing it at the time. And I wanted him to be able to reflect on his youth. So I imagined he was many decades older looking back, which meant I could at the end of chapters have a moment of reflection on what he'd gone through. And it just helped me sort of sharpen some of the points I wanted to make through the book anyway. You use
0: footnotes liberally throughout the novel to give readers more information about the real people and places you reference. And sometimes to explain what came from your imagination and what is indeed fact. For example, you tell readers about former North Carolina Senator Jesse Helms, about performers like Sylvester and the Weather Girls, and about famed gay clubs in New York City that were forced to close by the city. Personally, I felt like I learned a lot from these footnotes about the fight for civil rights in the gay community and about the government's response to the AIDS crisis in the 80s, as well as about pop culture. Was including these always part of your plan, and did it require an immense amount of
1: research on your part? It it wasn't originally part of the plan. It sort of came up because I I don't like it when I'm reading a book and I feel like it's reaching past me to a wider, oftentimes whiter audience. So it's supposed to be about black people, but they're explaining something like they're telling me what collard greens are, and I'm like, I I don't I don't need this explanation. Oh, that's right, you're trying to get Pam in the back. Got it. And I didn't want to do that. So if I'm, if the book is something where I felt these two would not be explaining it to each other, you know, two gay black men in the mid eighties, one of them says, oh, Luther's album came out. Did you hear it? They don't have to say it's Luther Vandross. They know that. But I wanted, I respected that a lot of the audience, particularly a lot of the audience that might be younger, may not know who these people are. I work in television. I work, you know, every assistant is like 23 years old and they just moved to LA six months ago. And I would just sort of every once in a while go, do you know who Larry Kramer is? And it was the barest of sketches. It was like, well, he was an AIDS activist. Okay, but what was he like? They have no idea. And I get that. I get that. It's not, I mean, they know of, but they don't, they haven't had an intimate knowledge because we don't teach queer history in school. I mean, where where would they have picked that up? And so everything they know about that era is a sketch. And I just wanted to fill that information in for those who needed it, but if you've already had that information, I didn't want to worry you one bit. You can just read the prose and you don't even have to bother with those footnotes. They're there for the ones who need the help. In the novel, civil rights activist
0: Bayard Rustin who orchestrated the March on Washington in 1963, but was forced to take a back seat in the movement because he was gay and is still neglected in history books. Um, I know personally, I did not learn about him until I was an adult. I no one ever mentioned him when I was growing up. Um, he plays a very prominent role in this novel. Young Trey meets him in a black bathhouse in the city, the Mount Morris Bass, and he becomes a mentor to him. He tells him about what it was like to work with Martin Luther King and her friend James Baldwin. You mentioned in one of your footnotes that there's no evidence Rustin was a customer in this bathhouse or in any other gay bathhouse or sex club. How did you decide to include him in the novel? And were you worried about any backlash just because, as you mentioned in the footnote, there's no proof that he was ever um, a visitor to these places?
1: There is no proof he was a visitor to these places, but he was once arrested in Pasadena, my current home. Uh, He was found cruising in a car with another man, Uh, this being, I believe, in the 1950s and minor charge, paid the fine, no jail time, of course. But what it did, just that piece of history was, it it made me look at him in a different way. And what it made me realize is this icon of like uh, African-American history and, and, and LGBTQ plus history was also a human being with sexual urges and needs. And I just wanted the audience to see him that way as well. Um, I will tell you, I was absolutely worried about backlash uh, from either his foundations, from his friends, uh, from his surviving partner, Walter Nagel. I have been lucky to say that that has not happened. I mean, this weekend, I'm going to the Bayard Rustin Center for Social Justice to to do an event. So they have embraced the book. And uh, Mr. Rustin's partner, Walter, will be there. His, His only note on the book is that on one page, I describe Mr. Rustin, as stooped and flabby because he was in his 70s uh he sent me a picture of Rustin at the beach around that age where he looks trim and fit and he wanted me to know he wanted me me to know that there was nothing uh stooped or flabby about Mr. Rustin
0: well that is nice I I just imagine I can see how you might be nervous about that it's good that they were embracing of the book
1: I probably feared Larry Kramer more Larry Kramer was alive when I started writing this book and you know, you you work very hard on a novel. You work for years. And I suddenly, did, I thought, I don't want this book to come out. And Larry Kramer just to denounce it and trash it, as he was prone to do in his life. Um, and that just be all people know about the book. Oh, that's that book that Larry Kramer hates. And I really did uh, fear that. Sadly, Mr. Kramer died while I was writing the book. Uh, and I I mean, I was, of course, moved and saddened by that it did however free me up
0: so did you hear from anyone though that that knew him and I say- knew
1: I heard uh, I heard from somebody who is sort of the uh the his official biographer uh who thought I got Larry dead right on in a lot of key ways and that that was that felt good i mean with both these people with with you know with all the people in this book there are troves and troves of Uh, audio recordings and their own writing and their speeches and other people's accounts of them that it was, I found, they were accessible. They were people I could write about. So there are a lot of things in that book. People ask me about the details, like, like Mr. Rustin's feelings towards Martin Luther King and the movement after he'd been pushed out. I'm not really inventing that. That attitude, that outlook is one he had. I mean, I remember the interview, I believe it was in the uh, Making Gay History series, which is a great podcast to go listen to. Um, He talks about that very thing and the attitude he espoused is the one I reflected.
0: Well, Trey's life begins to change in this novel once he gets involved with activism. He becomes a member of ACT UP, he goes through brutal training, he's arrested and Throughout this, we get an inside view of what it's like to be an activist and how they're often factions with the same goal and there's generational conflict about how to go through things. In recent years, we've seen a lot of big movements spring up, like Black Lives Matter and March for Our Lives. Did you write this partly in response to those modern movements as sort of like a guide to agitating?
1: I did, and I and I wanted and I wanted to sort of reassure. People in those movements, especially the young people in those movements of two things. One, it's okay that there's infighting. I know it seems crazy. I know you go, oh my goodness, I can't believe we're turning on each other. But, you know, you know, iron sharpens iron. And that that debate over ideas, the idea that some people might break off and do something their way and others might break off and do it theirs. We need all those voices. We need all those approaches in the mix. The other thing is that a lot of movements, when you look at them, are often led or have in key leadership roles, very young people who don't really have a grand plan. They're just addressing the needs in front of them. They're making decisions the best they can. And you can you can create a movement that way. It's all right. I think, I think I sometimes worry now when it comes to movements and activism we're trying to be almost too corporate. Well, what's our mission statement? And what's our five point plan? And where where will we be in five years? Who the hell knows we're gonna be in five years? We gotta make sure we stop this bill tonight, you know? And the future will sort of reveal itself as we work. And that's okay. We don't have to mimic um, corporate America. We don't have to have talking points for everything. Sometimes they turn the camera on you just speak from the heart. That's the best thing you can do. You don't have to, you don't have to plan everything within an inch of its life. You'll kind of go crazy if you try. So I, I hope that comes through that this is I thought of an inc- I think act up and uh, the gay rights and AIDS activists were some of the most effective in in, in in all of time. Now they now they at the moment wouldn't have believed that. They didn't know that. They couldn't believe that they were fighting so much, but they got an awful lot done.
0: This book really highlights the role of Black people in the fight for gay civil rights. When Trey is arrested at a demonstration, he notes that most of the people being beaten and hauled off are people of color, even though most of the demonstrators in this instance are white. Why is it so important for you to look at the movement through this intersectional lens?
1: Well, I think I think we've got, we we can be more honest about the truth, the further we get from it, it seems as human beings. Um, I, I both fault and understand why sort of early AIDS activism and early stories about AIDS were white centric. Because at that time we were appealing to Congress or the government, and it was generally white men sitting on the other side of the table. You want to bring them someone they can quote unquote, relate to. You wanna put someone there that they could imagine might be at their dinner table. So you send Kevin, cause he's blonde haired and blue eyed, and maybe he could be their son and they will have sympathy for you. That's a strategy I understand. We're trying to send the most effective uh, spokespeople forward. But what it does over time is anyone who doesn't look like Kevin is kept in the back, is silenced, is suddenly not asked to join the board, It's suddenly not at the table when we're making decisions away from the policymakers. It just sort of sets in. And the truth is, in those back rooms in the beginning, there were a lot of people of color. They didn't necessarily get to go and testify before Congress because they were deemed not to be the most effective advocates, but they were doing a lot of work. And I just, now that we are further away, there are a lot of things we can talk about I mean, one of the things I talk about is just uh, just reminding people in this book without being too graphic that their idea of how people die of AIDS from the movies is almost romantic. I mean, in almost every movie you see, uh, people dying of AIDS are surrounded by their loved ones and they gently drift away. This disease was a horrible way to die, horrible. In fact, many people taking care of people with this disease, many doctors, would not allow people to... to To fight this disease to their last breath, they would intervene. At the time, when we, you know, 1985, 1986, you know, while we were fighting for other things, no one wanted to also introduce the right to die. No one wanted to talk about mercy killings. That would have muddied the waters. Now, this many years out, that can be part of the story. We can admit that we had to do that for our loved ones because this disease was so wretched and there was no other relief
0: you know, even today, so much time has passed, um, there's still not a cure for AIDS. I mean, and we still see discrepancies in the, or excuse me, we still see disparities in the numbers in the terms of Black people who are dying of this disease. I mean, do you feel like uh, those activists in the 80s, and I know some of them are are still with us and still trying to make change, do you I feel like this has sort of been put on the back burner for some people that we just don't hear about it as much. I mean, um, you know, we see commercials on TV for prep, and it seems like there's a still a population of people though who are not uh, who are still suffering with this, and who it seems like no one is paying attention to them.
1: It isn't. It isn't getting the emphasis it used to. I mean, there was something. Um... And that's, and that's what I think really spurred the movement to great strength in the beginning was, well, if you get this, you die and any number of us could have it. And so everybody felt incredibly connected. No one felt invincible now with prep or Truvada, uh, now with it being in a lot of ways, a manageable disease, I don't know that people feel as vulnerable as they used to. And on the whole, that's not bad. Like, I'm I'm glad that it's a manageable disease. I'm glad that there's PrEP. I'm thrilled that there's Truvada. I mean, we wanted those answers. And it is quite amazing that we got there as fast as we got there. So that's commendable. I do, with every movement, after progress, you still look and you go, well, wait a minute, who did we leave behind? And I'm glad that we still have advocates who are fighting for that. But when the population of people that is threatened grows small, it is hard to get mainstream attention. Uh, We saw this with COVID. When COVID first came out and they were like, well, only the really sick and the really old are dying from it. There was almost this, I mean, I remember thinking, well, is that okay? Are we all right? They deserve to die, right? But the thought was, this is only a threat to a limited part of the population, and so, the general public when that when they learn that goes well we don't have to do anything when it suddenly was taken out you know people younger and all, i mean when it when it really went wide then it became we need to mobilize i'm afraid that seems to be part of human nature
0: another thing that really stands out about this novel is that it is just a very sexy sex positive novel you know, despite what's going on uh, with the AIDS crisis. I mean, we see Trey is spending a lot of time at the Morris Bass and you describe his exploits there in a lot of detail. Why was it important for you that we see this side of Trey's life?
1: Because normally, again, when you tell these stories closer to the mid eighties, that would have been frowned upon. You know, there's a pandemic and it's spread, spread through sexual contact is one of the ways it would be irresponsible to have your hero also going out and having sex, sometimes, you know, um, unprotected sex. Yet that's the truth of it. I mean, and it's the truth of it because people need a release, especially during dark times. Uh, And sex has proven to be one of the best releases throughout human history. Um, And I wanted to show that someone who was facing something so stark would need to party and feel alive and almost feel rebellious and sex was a way to to do that I also think of sex as not just something carnal but a legitimate human need people need touch they need intimacy some of us need to be kissed we need to be held and I wanted all that in the mix too it also just rings true to life when you're 17 to 19 years old In my own life, I went to college in D.C., and I volunteered at a a foster house for children who were HIV positive and had AIDS, and I would be there some Friday nights uh, when the kids got off school and I was a volunteer caretaker, help them with their homework, help them with dinner, put them to bed, and then I would ride my bike to DuPont Circle that night and go party at Badlands or Chaos and take a random guy home, have sex, maybe protect it, maybe not. I had just seen what that disease could do and how it was changing lives. And yet I would go out and risk it. Why did I do that? Because I was 18, because that's the sort of decision you make when you're 18. But also because I needed in my head probably to balance out the heaviness of one thing, I needed to release it somewhere else.
0: Well, let's switch gears now. See, we don't have a whole lot of time left. So I'm just gonna ask you a couple of questions about what you'd sure. like to read. Uh, Do you have any novels that you find yourself returning to again and again? Um, I like to call them go-to novels, or maybe you've read them so, so many times, but you know you're still going to read them again because there's something that draws you to them.
1: I mean, almost anything by Kurt Vonnegut. I mean, I I love Timequake, which even people, people, some people get down on Timequake. I love it. Um, I'm actually, I'm really big on poetry. Um, Nikki Giovanni is a hero. Uh, Rita Dove, Billy Collins. So those are sort of some some go-tos for me. Um, I'm trying to think of what else I sort of love. Uh, Toni Morrison's great. Um, so those are probably the ones I, I hit the most. Um, oh, and A Hundred Years of Solitude. I, oh, oh, no, no, if I had to pick. Um, oh, my goodness. Uh, no, no, A Hundred Years of Solitude is great.
0: Well, on the flip side of that, do you have any novels that you have struggled to get through and maybe just finally decided to put it aside? Or maybe you did finish, but you just found that your reaction maybe was very different from the reaction of readers at large or or
1: critics about it? Oh, my goodness. I have whole writers. I, I I mean, I don't understand what the fuss about James Joyce is. I mean, I'm like we have to decode this i mean i write to be read and understood this feels like a silly game and i'm not sure what the point is um hemingway never moved me faulkner a lot of the a lot, i mean a lot of the white men of the old canon i just couldn't get into um you know fiscot uh, or uh, uh fitzgerald i love uh great gatsby probably a book i've reread a thousand times it feels modern and real uh but I don't, I don't think I do well with machismo and that sort of macho yeah. nonsense. And then there are a lot of writers in the middle of uh, the century who I just find really boring. Updike, bores me to tears. I mean, it was like, you know, he had a rabbit run series. And I'm like, why are we just following this remarkable man across three books? I, I, I was baffled. What are you reading? Did right I trash now? enough writers there? Was that good? Yeah, that was
0: great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I Alfred I, I asked this question a lot of people are like, well, you know, I don't really want to say anybody because they're afraid of offending someone and so I'm so glad that you gave a, a rattle. Off I mean list. It's,
1: by the way, and I think this is okay. They, I think readers need to know if it's not for you put it down. They're, I mean, you can't possibly read all the books in the world. You should be reading the ones, yes, that challenge you, but they've got to speak to you in some way, shape or form. And those books are sort of, they come from a worldview that is so foreign to me. Not only do I not get it, I'm not interested in going there. Well, I can totally relate to
0: that. What are you reading right now?
1: Oh, my goodness. Uh, How Not to Drown in a Drink of Water by Angie Cruz uh, is on my bedside t- table. Uh, I just finished uh, Sacrificio by Ernesto uh, uh, Maitre Reed. Um, trying to think what else I'm getting into. Oh, I'm I'm doing "Less Is Lost" by Andrew Sean Greer. So that's those are the ones I'm I'm working on now.
0: And what about your own work? Are you already busy writing another novel? Or are you too busy with your TV work?
1: How, how's that work? Oh you? no, I'm writing a novel. <laughs> that means so much. It's the beginning. It's so much fun. I've hit the point already where I will write about ten thousand words, and then I'll go, "Oh my god." This is what the novel is about. Like, you know, finally, I'll I'll understand. And then you go back and that sort of knocks you back maybe 5,000 words or so. And you, you start rebuilding. But you're now rebuilding with a point. You know exactly where we're headed. And so I'm, I'm, having, I'm having a great time.
0: So it sounds like this is super early in the process. Is there anything you can tell about this project? Or is it just way too early?
1: Oh, well, I mean, the thing I can tell you, which is, I mean, I'm happy to be writing about it because I know a lot about, the place it's at i mean um i wanted to go to hollywood and i thought oh i could write a black queer hollywood novel um and so that's what i'm doing
0: okay well that sounds exciting rashid thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about your work i really appreciate it
1: thank you this was wonderful
0: if you want a free copy of my government means to kill me go to readmorepodcast.com to find out how to win one you can also help Rasheed and the show by buying the book on our site. Also, please visit our sponsor's website or you'll get a 15% discount on your purchase by using the code READMORE, all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at READMOREPODCAST and like us on Facebook. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. And our guest will be Layla Motley. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton reminding you to read more.